This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of The Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. We're going to be joined for the show today by Will Peck, who's the head of strategy and emerging technologies at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I am a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizards Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. Couldn't have a better time show with cryptocurrencies going a little wild. Uh, we've got uh, the founders of a crypto hedge fund that Will and I are going to be talking to um, for the show. But, Professor, we've got some updates in the markets here, some tax policies, updates. Yeah. We knew these were coming. Um, but the market's sort of hanging in there. They're sort of rebounding after a little sell-off yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. And it is puzzling because there's nothing – in in that that he hadn't put on the website listen people that have been listening to us know that i i said you know way last year that uh that uh, maybe about half of his tax hikes are going to get in i said you know we'll probably get the corporate rate at 25 there will be some removal of some of the trump uh, lowerings, but we will not get, uh, you know, the absolute uh, removal of, of capital gains, even for the high-income people. Uh, that's just not going to happen. Uh, so, and I have not changed any of my, my I, 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 I was really shocked. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's these trend followers, and all of a sudden they said, oops, just a minute, this is bad news to get off, and then it, uh, uh, stops are triggered for all the trend followers. Oops, just a minute, market's down. One percent, I've got to get out, and when I, and then it overreacts. I mean, we were actually today almost made up what we've lost yesterday. It's really no reason to uh, you know change your view on on uh, the the markets at all. Uh, you know what I'm looking at, as you know, is inflation coming up uh, next week. We get the PCE deflator, but it's for the month of March. It's the last indicator. We've already had CPI and PPI. Inflation's really not going to start showing and and uh until we get into looking at the april and may figures we've got lots of anecdotal evidence i think what the fed and the markets are waiting for is this anecdotal evidence actually going to turn into real evidence that we actually see uh in those statistics i think uh it will um uh, but we're going to have to wait a little bit longer uh uh to see that you know, Professor, one, speaking of the Fed, one of the things um, right after James Bullard came on our show, he was he was on another another program and he made some comments that if the vaccination rate got to 75 percent, they'd have to start thinking about tapering. And now we've got sort of vaccination levels as a indicator for monetary policy. I, I don't know if you have any if you heard those comments or have any views. Is that uh, is, is, do you think he's got is he just an outlier there? Is he is, is well, that he's some? been pretty bullish. I know it's a good point. I mean, he's been bullish about, you know, once this, uh, you know, vaccine is behind us, that we're going to have a very, very strong recovery. Um, and, uh, you know, he was on our show early in the pandemic a year ago. And then again, um, uh, you know, when, when I expressed concern over all the money that was increased. So, uh, yeah, and his position is that we're, we're going to rebound. Now, we're rebounding a lot later than we certainly thought last, you know, year ago, March and April. We thought, hey, maybe, you know, by the end of the summer, we'd all be back to normal. And then, of course, we had the, the winter surge. Um, but I think that that pretty much does have, I mean, you know, you, you take a look at countries that have vaccinated extraordinarily well, like uh, uh, Israel, it, the rates are way down. And in fact, it was an extraordinary news. I mean, we've had 84 million people that have been fully vaccinated. Um, 
Of those that are fully vaccinated, only 6,000 cases, which is less than one hundredth of one percent. And of those, only 4,000 of those cases showed any symptoms. And I think of, of all those, there's only been 47 deaths. I mean, so, I mean, you are actually less than flu levels now. of People who are vaccinated in terms of, of, you know, what danger it is um, are actually below what it, we, we get in a, a, a normal flu season. Um, we're not going to wipe out the, the coronavirus. Uh, uh, the question is, is getting it down to levels where it really poses no more danger than everything else that is basically out there, specifically the flu, which, by the way, kills about 35,000 people a year, but killed virtually no one last year uh, because COVID took over and people were, were, were safe and distanced. Uh, but, you know, there, so we, we can't, we're never going to eliminate it all. Um, and, uh, in fact, Scott Gobley was on again, and he said, I expect summer to be really good in fall, but I expect those who are not vaccinated we're going to see a little bit of a resurgent next uh, November and December. And, you know, that's just going to be the way it's going to be. I, you're not going to get everyone vaccinated. They refuse to take it. They're going to take their chances. And um, we could argue whether that's right or wrong. Uh, but that's what's going to happen. It's always going to be background noise. But, uh, yeah, I think he's one going to be one of those that is, I think, uh, you know, worried about that inflation from money. He's not voicing it. Um but uh, we'll see whether more Fed officials. There is a Fed meeting next week, but they're going to be not, no new news because, the, the, except for the producer price index that we got last month, nothing has been that dangerous. It's all anecdotal. So they're going to wait for the hard evidence. They say things are moving in the right direction, but we have no you know desire to change our plan. So that's what's going to happen next week. We're going to really have to wait until a couple more reports are out, and then the meeting that we see in June, which is a quarterly meeting where they actually uh, you know make their forecast. That's when we might be uh, hearing more uh, about uh, you know the possible uh, uh, you know tapering of the open market purchases. You know, I know you're on the more aggressive side on interest rates, and uh, I heard uh, maybe somebody more aggressive than you. I, I heard Larry Lindsay's calling for 3% on the 10-year by the end of the year. Um, I, I know you said There's 3%. Few people more aggressive than me. And we've had a little respite. No, you're perfectly right, Jeremy. And, you know, I, I, you know, it was up to 175, and now it's 155. Um, I, you know, it was a crowded trade, let's face it. I mean, everyone was, oh, God. And, and 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 then there was a little bit of news that wasn't so bad. Everyone covered their shorts, and now it's you know been hanging in in the 150s. I I think it will resume up and it will reach above two. But one has to remember, you know, 40-year bull markets don't die overnight. I mean, this is one of the longest bull markets in history, uh, and there's a lot of reasons. Again, people buy those bonds as short-term hedges, and you know, uh, you know, a little inflation is not going to cause them to give it up overnight. But I think the steady march upward on yields uh, will continue uh, for the rest of this year. Very good. We're going to be talking crypto on the show. Um, any, any, uh, it's been, yeah, a little it's been vo- so recently, uh, listen, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I tell you the, the big risk on crypto is regulatory risk. If the, if the, if, if the government decide to put out either a central bank currency, break the monopoly on MasterCard and Visa, and have private banks offer transfers at 10 basis points, mandate firms to be able to, you know, give discounts to people, don't use credit cards, um, uh, enforce capital gains and money laundering rules in crypto. I mean, I can go on and on. Those are the risks on crypto. Um, and, um, you know, uh, if, they're, if they're pursued, that will depress the price. If they're not, uh, you know, it's the new gold. It's the new hedge against inflation. And uh, if, if nothing's done, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see it resume its, uh, its uh, upward course, at least in the short run. Very good, Professor. Always great to get your comments. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, let me turn our conversations. We have Will Peck, who's the head of strategy, emerging technologies at Wisdom Tree, and we have two uh, two great guests, Ed Shin and Tejas Noval, co-founders of Parataxi Capital. Uh, Ed is the CEO. Tejas is the chief investment officer. Hopefully, I'm getting uh, Tejas your name close to correct. Um, probably not, but uh, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for having us. Um, it's, it, it's good to be here as a, as a Wharton grad and former student of uh, Professor Siegel's. It's, it, it's glad to 
kind of get his perspectives. Um, you, you know, by, by way of background, um, uh, you know, Tejas and I are the co-founders and, as you mentioned, the CEO and CIO of Parataxis Capital, respectively. Uh, Parataxis is a, is a multi-strategy uh, hedge fund focused only on the digital asset sector. You know, but uh, I grew up in California and I uh, went to Cal as an undergrad, uh, spent, spent a couple of years as a, as a U.S. military officer um, and, and overseas as a Fulbright fellow before. Uh, going to the Warren School, um, I, interestingly enough, I, I started at Lehman Brothers in 2008 uh, as, as an investment banker, um, just as the firm was filing for bankruptcy, and, and coincidentally, just as the Bitcoin white paper was was being published. And so I feel like uh, we, we, we've come, where I've come full circle in, in some senses. I, uh, I joined the digital asset space um, after having spent about a decade in banking in 2017 to run the advisory business at one of the earlier merchant banks in the space called the Element Group. Um, and, uh, on the other side of the Chinese wall, managing the firm's uh, hedge fund and asset management division is, is uh, was my counterpart and, and CIO Tejas. Um, I, I spent about a year there before uh, working for uh, uh, Galaxy Digital and then launched Parataxis in late 2019. Uh, we, we have three funds that were managing today the, the flagship absolute return fund, uh, which we'll get into details of. We kicked off in, in June of 2020. And, uh, uh, you know, folks thought we were crazy starting a fund in the middle of a pandemic. <clears throat> but in hindsight, it's pretty clear that the, that the timing was pretty spot on. Very good. Tejas, how did you come to the crypto space? Give us your background. Sure, sure. Thanks, Jeremy. And thanks for having us. Um, um, like Ed, my background is uh, traditional finances as well, uh, but on the trading side. I spent, I spent about a decade at, uh, at Goldman Sachs early in my career, um, most recently as a portfolio trader in the equities division. The, uh, in, in 2012, the, the guy that was sitting next to me on the trading desk uh, was mining and trading Bitcoin uh, on the side. And this is this is pre Mt. Gox. This is uh, before Bitcoin had its first run up, and really where most people uh, in, in my world got their first introduction. Um, that's where I, I learned about it. I bought some. I think it was trading sub two hundred dollars at the time. I didn't buy enough, of course. Uh, but uh, for me, the the appeal as a trader was seeing an ecosystem that looked and felt like um, the Wall Street that I wanted to be a part of. Um, and, it, and it looked and felt like an ecosystem that was being architected right in front of my eyes. So the opportunity to, to be a part of that and, and, and join uh, or, or uh, uh, leave my current seat and, and join the crypto world full time was uh, very, very appealing. So I, I joined um, uh, the Element Group, which is the uh, company where I met Ed uh, in 2017. I was um, one of the early employees there. I effectively built and launched a hedge fund from scratch uh, with that team. Was managing a series of fundamentally driven long and short strategies uh, for the Element Group, and then um, spent some time in another crypto uh, hedge fund in 2019, and then before leaving to to join Paratactus and uh, you know, help Ed uh, uh, build the fund that we have today. So, how do you think about hey guys, the? So I gotta oh. ask. You know, looks like there was a big move overnight in. Uh, <laughs> Probably a little bit less so in ETH. Do you have any commentary on what's going on there for the listeners? Sure. Um, so I, I think the the market obviously didn't like the 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 news yesterday with uh, uh, the possibility of a cap gains tax increase. Um, I don't I don't think any market liked that. So there was a bit of a pullback. Um, you know, there's with, with crypto these pullbacks in the short term tend to be a little bit more volatile um, given the amount of leverage that exists in the system so I, I think you saw a little bit of a long squeeze happen uh, overnight of course catalyzed by by certain macro events um, and so and so um, and there was also some weekly expiry uh, some week, some options that were expired uh, early this morning so you know it was a, a bit of a timing thing uh, some some short term news or some short term selling by uh, by retail traders, but um, you know, it looks like, looks like uh, the market's priced it in uh, fairly well right now. Yeah, not, the pullback, though, if you think about fundamentally, the, the thesis around the asset class hasn't changed, I think. Yep. The macro tailwinds are, are still very supportive. And if you think about global exchange trading volumes, about 10% um, of, of global volumes is, is based on the U.S., 
and, and you know about half of that is Coinbase. And if, if you assume that um, you know most of the purchasers on Coinbase are longer term holders, uh, they're thinking about holding this asset you know past four or eight years. Uh, with, uh, so the exposure to any type of potential uh, uh, gain, uh, increase in capital gains taxes, <clears throat> we think we'll, we'll actually have a, a muted effort on uh, on on some of the largest capital flows in the space. And so, you know, it, it's pulled back and Bitcoin's under 50K, but, but you know, for a longer term holder, this may actually pro- uh, present a pretty interesting entry point. Yeah, now it's only up, you know, however many X this year as opposed to X this year. It does get to kind of an interesting thing that, you know, a lot of people have started to comment on where there are big moves overnight in U.S. hours, U.S. hours overnight. It's obviously Bitcoin is unique in that it's truly a global market, trades 24-7, 365, with very active markets in Asia while uh, the U.S. is sleeping. And this is not an uncommon thing to see, right, where uh, U.S. investors may wake up in the morning and the price will have gapped one direction or the other. Do you have any commentary or kind of a simple explanation on why that is or some differences between uh, the markets uh, being U.S. and Asia, what that can drive this difference? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's a trend that we've noticed too, um, and, it, and it's one of those things where the moment uh, the moment you start talking about it, it tends to be a trend that just self manifests and and, and and it stays constant. I, I think there's a there, there's a few factors driving that. Um, number one, there is a we've noticed during U.S. hours at times there is some slight correlation to the equity markets. I think this is really due to uh, folks trading correlation trades between stocks and, and, and crypto, and at, at times of, of outside moves, uh, that has a, that has a short-term effect. So um, that's number one. Number two, there are different players or different pockets of um, uh, of investors um, uh, in Asia versus the U.S. Um, if you think about if you think about um, uh, what's happening right now with with uh, the launches of, of, of various ETFs. Uh, various uh, more retail-focused uh, uh, fund wrappers. They're, they're largely West Coast-based, so a lot of the buying happens to be um, happens to be during U.S. hours. Happens to be when when the U.S. when the Western Hemisphere is awake. And I think I, I think people tend to preempt that trade as well. So they may hedge overnight and and buy the U, uh, U.S. market hours. Um, and again, it's one of those things that turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. We're talking with Tejas Naval and Ed Chin, co-founders of Paratoxy Capital, crypto-focused hedge fund, which is you know in the news today. I mean, Bitcoin and, and and ETH are the two coins a lot of people talk about, but there's been a, a big you know ten percent moves in a lot of things um, over over recently. Um, how, how do you guys, as as a hedge fund, how are you thinking about building exposures? the types of assets you want to do, and then really just the type of trading strategies you want to employ. How are you thinking about the, the types of strategies that you, that you guys focus on? Yeah, um, I, I can share my views um, very quickly. I, I think the way we think about the world has really been shaped by what we've seen in crypto over the past several years um, and what we've seen with traditional assets. Uh, we understand that markets run in cycles. Uh, crypto is no different. Uh, the cycles are a little bit uh, more accelerated, uh, and they tend to revolve around Bitcoin's having schedule. Um, so there are bull markets, there are bear markets. There are times that it, it makes sense to hold a natural long bias, times it makes sense to uh, be hedged or be a bit more tactical. Um, and we, we also do understand that the store of value hypothesis with Bitcoin doesn't necessarily translate to a large part of the market, and there is value accrual that, that, that exists outside of Bitcoin um, in, in a way that uh, very different than, than years prior. Um, there are real cash flows being generated with certain segments of the market that we can model and actually uh, forecast a fair value price uh, for certain tokens. Um, and, and so we, 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 we do allocate a significant portion of our fund to, to that thesis. Um, and we also recognize that the market's still very young. It's still very nascent. Um, the, it's it's um, inefficient, and that inefficiency, as we've as evidenced by this week's uh, 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 price action, and it just creates opportunity for arbitrage. And for us as an active fund, uh, that's that's uh, that's alpha right there. So we we've incorporated a lot of these um, uh, paradigms into how we've constructed our portfolio. 
Um, and so we're, we're a multi-strat portfolio. Our focus is absolute return. We aim to produce a positive return, irrespective of if we're in a bull market or a bear market. Uh, and and I think and I think the, this gives gives us a lot of freedom and and flexibility to be tactical. Um, and if you think about the crypto markets too, they, it tends to evolve and reinvent itself every six months. So you you have to have that uh, ability to be tactical because. You know, for for a lot of single strategy funds, uh, you may spend a lot of time backtesting a strategy, and it may, it may work exceptionally well on your backtest. But the moment you put it into uh, commit real capital to it, you you realize it doesn't work because the market has changed. New 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 players have entered the space. Uh, the microstructure has evolved. So for us, the ability to be tactical and really uh, evolve with the markets uh, was important when we were designing this fund. That's probably hit on that a little bit, Tejas. You know, obviously, I think a lot of the listeners, some of them may have like a Coinbase account or Gemini account. You know, Bitcoin, ETH, probably easier to grasp and understanding kind of the alt tokens from there. But I mean, what you guys are doing is much beyond just right picking winners or losers, kind of quote stock picking within the crypto space. So, what are, are there some things you can examples you can give or analogies you can make with kind of traditional markets in terms of what you guys do or some of the strategies you employ? Sure. Uh, do you want to talk about um, how we think about DeFi or, or how we think about um, our thesis-driven investments here? Yeah, yeah, I, I can do that. So that we, we we broadly break uh, break up our our exposures across uh, macro thesis-driven and, and non-correlated. <clears throat> we're we're really excited about um, our thesis-driven book. If you think about um, some of the things that are that are happening, the most exciting parts of the digital asset space, it actually has nothing to do with Bitcoin. And so I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are traditionally the entry or the, the gateway drugs in, into the sector. But uh, pretty soon, I think folks uh, realize that, that there's, a, there's a, a ton of interesting things going on. Uh, well, you know, one interesting uh, sector is the decentralized finance space, uh, it, also known as DeFi. What we're seeing there is, is replication of, of entire swaths of, of the traditional financial infrastructure and ecosystem. Um, and, and by, by effectively removing a layer of operating expense, you, you know, if, you're, if you think about a Wells Fargo, it, it has to basically fund a management team, bank branches, um, and, and, a, and a bunch of marketing expenses. If you can replace that with code um, and issue a, a governance token uh, on top of that so that the actual users of the network themselves uh, can accrue the value from 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 the network effects on that network. That's really powerful. And so, you know, one, one example, uh, a thesis-driven investment that we have that we continue to remain bullish on is MakerDAO. It's a it's a decentralized uh, lending platform. If you think about it, it's it's effectively what Wells Fargo does today. Uh, but but you or I or any other individual can take their own collateral post it uh, onto the blockchain and lend against that and, and, and use those proceeds to, to, to do other things. And so we're really, really excited about that because um, uh, those, those platforms are, are decentralized, uh, they're censorship resistant, and, and, and it really lowers the barriers to entry uh, for folks that may not otherwise have access to traditional uh, financial infrastructure to, to basically participate in lending markets. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, from a personal perspective, and I think, you know, Wisdom is a firm really interested in these types of protocols, really processes, and the way I've thought about it in the past. I mean, it's just taking things, like you said, Ed, that were manual processes, paperwork that was shuffled, and making it self-executing automated code, um, which you can ignore all the other things about DeFi. If you focus on that one thing, it's actually a very, very cool innovation where you can have you know, everyone who's affiliated with a project could leave, go do something else, and the fact that that protocol can still execute its code and serve the functions that it was set out to do is just a very cool technology and something that, you know, we think has lots of implications in lots of different places going forward. Now, there's going to be a long ramp-up plan, and it needs to kind of evolve beyond today, where I think it's mostly a space that's focused on really crypto-native people and is not necessarily kind of making its way into traditional finance yet, but the applications of it seem very real. That, that, that's right. I think, I think, I think if the, the, the analogy I tend to give people is, um, if, do you remember trying to log on to the internet back in the mid-90s? It, uh, it was actually a very difficult process if you weren't uh, computer native. 
before before the web browser was 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 invented. So so we're kind of at that point. Um, you have to be somewhat crypto native to to really uh, access what what, what many of these pre- uh, platforms offer in terms of yield or the ability to borrow. But I think uh, we will start seeing the the uh, application le- uh, layer really evolve uh, to be a bit more uh, user friendly and and especially to folks who aren't uh, who aren't crypto native or who aren't even finance native. You made an interesting point earlier on the that there's coins that you can put a fair value on, you know, and people a lot of think people call this just speculative, you know, it's just betting on higher prices continuing. Can you give an example of a coin that you do do that kind of fair value work and how you think about trying to build a model for valuation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, just going back to the maker example, we, you know, we, we have an operating model on that protocol. If you think about it, uh, just, like, just like any financial institution, uh, the, the key kind of KPI there is net interest margin. So by, by basically borrowing from the, the protocol, uh, you'd have to pay an interest rate, and depending upon the collateralization ratio and the actual uh, underlying uh, asset, that that rate can f- uh, fluctuate anywhere from three to nine percent uh, today, and it, and it can move up or down based on governance votes and what the market is doing. And then there's a there's a savings rate that the protocol will pay out as well, and the delta between that is net interest margin or or, or income. And so <clears throat> for us, you know, we're, we we. Uh, we're pretty close to the foundation and, 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 and participate in, in all the governance calls. And so we have a pretty good sense of, of what, what a forecast for that asset base could look like. And the reason why we're excited about Maker, you know, talking about bridging the, the digital with the real world, they're, they're in the process of onboarding real world assets, you know, whether they be commercial real estate loans, trade receivables, really, really cool things. And, and folks are, 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 are looking to tap this source of capital because uh, from a cost of capital perspective, it's, it's uh, immensely uh, competitive to, to what they can get from hard money lenders or, or, or from the commercial banking system. And so by, by having a view on, on what that asset base could look like and, and what that net interest margin could, uh, what, what could be forecasted out to, you could either develop a DCF on that, apply a, a, a multiple. There are other relative value metrics that we look as well, uh, look at as well. Uh, uh, there's something called a price to total value lock, which is it, it's pretty similar to a price to book um, or a book value uh, metric that you would look at for a, a traditional bank. And so uh, these things uh, wouldn't be underwritten uh, outright uh, by, by our investments team, but but it, it helps us develop a framework to, to get a good sense for when something may be uh, uh, perceived to be under or overvalued. I think that I mean that's really interesting because one of the things that. I don't know if it's a pet peeve, but, you know, people will talk about, and it's easy to do this. You say crypto assets as an asset class. And really, their crypto assets are almost a vehicle or technology for lots of different types of assets, where the investment case for Bitcoin could be really different from that of Ether, which could be really different yeah. from that of MakerDAO, right? And it's not like all of these are the same thing yeah. and you can paint them with all the same brush. You know, each can have very different uh, investment you know, theses because you could do a stock-to-flow valuation model or whatever on Bitcoin, which doesn't have cash flows, doesn't generate cash flows, it doesn't fit into, like, a DCF model or anything like that. It's like gold has been for, you know, centuries, whereas, you know, MakerDAO or some of these other tokens actually generate cash flow and have kind of utility in that sense that can be fit into valuation metrics and have totally different investment, you know, risks and return potential than some other crypto assets. Yeah, that's right. And in the case of Maker, that excess cash flow, uh, there's an automatic buyback mechanism. The same way that a, a traditional public company would would you know initiate a a, a share buyback program through through its board, uh, because it's embedded within the code, and because the actual users of the platform can vote on these things. Uh, there's a there's a real way to to be able to forecast and measure what the what usage on the network. Uh, 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 is likely to be and how that would translate into a, a future token price. And so all of this is still very early days. It's very dynamic. We've we've seen valuations overshoot. And in the case of Maker, we think it's probably one, one of the most undervalued lending protocol tokens out there today. But it's still very early. We're, we're, what we're trying to do is 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 leverage uh, a lot of the, the methodologies and, and trading strategies that have worked in traditional financial markets to, as Kay just mentioned, what we think is a 
is a really uh, nascent and exciting, uh, but still inefficient marketplace. And, and, and you know, so far, uh, things seem to be working out okay. We're going to be talking with Tejas and Ed for the whole program. One of the issues we were just talking about DeFi uh, as a concept within the crypto space. And one of the opportunities is all these lending. People, we talked at the start of the show how interest rates are so low. Maybe interest rates start rising, but people talk about these, you know, huge, quote unquote, huge yields, maybe double digit yields. And maybe a little bit less in some of these DeFi exchanges and, and 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 opportunities there. Can we talk about the risks, the leverage in the system, and and what is going on there that gets these these yields available in the crypto space? Sure, I, I can start off there. So I, I think I think there's a few things uh, um, that determine where yields come from. Um, n- number one, we're, we're in a bull market. I think we're firmly in a bull market over the past uh, year. No one's going to argue that. Generally, in a bull market, um, you see futures prices of, of any asset class uh, trade at a premium um, and trading contango. And there's a cash and carry arb that exists. Uh, this is with really any commodity market. And so, so that, that creates a natural organic yield in, in that sense because there's demand uh, uh, for that type of leverage. And so right now the, de- the demand for leverage is very high. People will pay um, um, higher interest rates to borrow stable coins or other crypto assets. And it's a function of the market that we're in. So that's, uh, that, that, that shouldn't come as a shock. I think that's the, the case for really um, any, any asset or any commodity that has a derivatives uh, market as well. Uh, second, uh, a lot of these protocols themselves, like we mentioned before, they do generate fees. So there are revenues. Um, the ethos with DeFi is the ability to participate in this ecosystem. And um, similar to owning equity in a, in a stock exchange or a, a business that generates fees, you sort of own a percentage of, uh, of the exchange itself and, and, and get some of the fees uh, um, from the protocol itself. So there, there's, um, there's yield in that sense. Um, and I, I think that the third, what we've Found is the most interesting is um, many of these protocols. They're they're early stage. They're they're built by small teams, and the way they bootstrap uh, liquidity, the way they bootstrap their own growth, is by uh, offering native tokens um, uh, that are effectively governance tokens within the protocol themselves. And, and, and there's a yield component for that. So by providing liquidity to a platform that needs Ethereum or needs uh, uh, USDC, you're paid um, a governance token uh, for XYZ protocol, and so that that in itself is, is yield because these these tokens trade on on various marketplaces, and so I think um, there there's so those are probably the top three um, uh, sources of yield. There's there's a um, is there a fourth that you know one of the examples I've heard is that. You know, crypto markets function on a pre-funded basis on exchange, where unlike in traditional markets, which people really learned about with the GameStop, Robinhood saga, uh, that they settle T plus two on the securities markets. Um, And then there's a clearance settlement cycle that happens, and there's some counterparty risk in there, whereas Bitcoin settles when on-chain in, you know, 15 minutes or whatever it ends up being for that block to settle. Um, But... As part of that, it means that if you're making a trade or want to quote a price as a market maker, that uh, you need to actually have the Bitcoin there to be able to fill that order. Um, so that leads to a system where it actually is very capital intensive to make markets across, you know, an exchange in Asia versus a, you know, Coinbase in, in California, uh, which some of these global market making firms will do. And there's a lot of opportunity for arbitrage there for them to do their job in terms of arbitraging that out and providing tight spreads and good markets um, across. But that means that it's capital intensive. And so to do that, they would look to borrow Bitcoin, let's say, and the rates they can do that, they can easily earn that back out in the spreads that they would charge for. Uh... So that's a long answer. But is that do you guys think that's a good reason, too? It, 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 no, absolutely is. It, it's capital intensive. It's also uh, the, the microstructure is very fragmented. So if you have Bitcoin on one exchange, you can't necessarily use that to borrow uh, or collect, use that as collateral for something else on a, on a, on a separate exchange. So there's no um, there's no cross margining 
uh, or no clean way to cross margin that exists today. Uh, so for, for a market maker, for a principal desk um, that needs a large balance sheet, uh, it is a challenge. So the, the simplest, cleanest solution at times is to uh, you know, borrow and, and you, you pay up uh, a, a little bit in the, in the rate that you're borrowing. But uh, yeah, to your point, you, you make it up in, in trading and spreads. Yeah, and I think this overall topic is really interesting. It's one of the things that I get most commonly from friends outside the industry who are open-minded and kind of, you know, interested is they'll, you know, see an ad for, you know, a service that says, hey, deposit this U.S. dollar equivalent and you can earn 10% yields. And they're like, how can this be? Like, I'm getting, you know, nothing in my CFA or Chase account right now or any bank. I mean, no one's paying any rates. Interest rates are zero. Yet there's people saying that you can get 10% yields. I, and my point to them is always like, well, and they will tell you this, this firm, they're not a bank, right? Like there is a level of principal risk that you take on in making that bet. Yep. Um, yep. I guess, do you guys have any, what types of risks would you flag if a friend came up and asked you for that? Or how should they think about how this firm is, you know, maybe justifiably and very with good risk parameters generating these types of yields on uh, like dollar-based assets? Yeah, so, so I, you know, I, I think it comes down to, uh, to your point, Will, how is that asset being rehypothecated in order to generate that 10% yield? Because that market maker or that intermediary is, is generating a 13 to 15% yield on the back end in order to be able to justify that to, 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 to the lenders. And so uh, it, I, I, I think um, not all the liquidity pools are created alike, as you probably know, we've we, we, we get pitched uh, liquidity pools that are yielding a thousand percent. And typically, you know, if something is too good to be true, it's probably because there's something wrong with the underlying code base, the token economic design or, or, or other issues there. I, I think the, uh, the, the yields on, on very stable coin pools are, are like you said, 10, maybe 15, 20%, depending upon which pools you may be playing. Uh, but I, I think the more interesting thing is that the fact that you're getting those questions from folks that may otherwise not be thinking about this, I, I think is the most fascinating um, aspect of DeFi because, you know, we, we've seen traditional centralized systems, um, you know, previously being replicated in the blockchain space, but, but the issue has always been adoption because it, as Kay just mentioned, it's a bit clunky. How do I get access to this yield? How do I transact on an automated market maker and, and, and yield farming you know, with its first implementation last year, uh, it really accelerated the adoption of, of decentralized lending, borrowing, trading, uh, by essentially gamifying that credit creation and token exchange process. And so the, the fact that folks that, that may have never owned a Bitcoin before <clears throat> are all of a sudden starting to look at this, uh, I, I think the, these, these, the, these yield farming implementations and the incentives that are embedded within these protocols are, are are most importantly uh, drive, uh, driving and helping to bootstrap liquidity and, and, and in a sense, uh, creating things that, that didn't necessarily exist there before through a decentralized kind of communal way. And so, you know, there's a reason why Uniswap has surpassed Coinbase at times in terms of exchange volume. Um, and and I, I think that's the key innovation. I think these yields um, are, 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 are attractive depending on the pool. And, and, and um, as more capital enters the space, we do have a view that, that the yields are probably uh, compressed uh, because there's going to be more assets, more capital chasing, uh, fewer rewards. But, but the way that the market starts today and the innovation and, 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 and the new protocols that are coming to market, I, I think it, it'll ideally be a source of returns for investors for, for the foreseeable future. And you mentioned... The only one, anecdote sorry. I'll add to that, um, um, if you think about USDC right now, I think on, on certain platforms um, like like a, like a BlockFi, I think it pays seven eight percent, which is a which is a good yield for a for a stable coin. Um, and so if, if you think about what is what are you uh, what are you getting there, um, or why why are you getting seven percent? Um, there's a certain amount of risk that that exists that isn't existent with a traditional bank. Um, you know, it, it is a stable coin backed by, I, I think Circle was, was the founder, but it's Coinbase now that, that issues the stable coin. So there, if you were to price that risk, uh, plus the 
Uh, it's built on the, uh, the Ethereum blockchain plus the counterparty risk, uh, which is very minimal. BlockFi is a very well-funded company. It probably does come to right around 7%. So um, it's, it's, it's not uh, something crazy. And the, uh, the other anecdote I'll give you is I remember in college, uh, I opened up an ING Orange savings account. I think I was getting 7 or 8% on my dollars there. So it's, uh, I think we're, we've been in a low-rate environment for so long. We're somewhat conditioned to think that this is how much uh, – this is where interest rates should be. Or what the, so I think, I, think, I think what we're seeing in, in the crypto space is probably um, uh, a, a good proxy for where, where folks uh, who are very young today uh, would feel comfortable uh, uh, putting their dollars and generating uh, interest. It is a funny disconnect, though, when we start off the call with Professor Siegel saying he was a uh, – he's been the most um, – I don't know if you say bullish or bearish on rates, thinking they'd go to 3% on the 10-year this year. And you guys are calmly talking about uh, 7 8% on uh, dollars. And uh, it just shows you kind of the – I don't know if you say disconnect, but um, difference between uh, the traditional TradFi world and the uh, decentralized world. Yeah. Let me just do a quick reintroduction here. We've got Ed Chin and Tejas Naval of Parataxi Capital, a crypto-focused uh, hedge fund, and, and, and Ed's CEO, and, and Tejas is the chief investment officer. Why don't we talk a little bit about the setting up the sort of new hedge fund during a pandemic and, and how it's gone, like the business side? You know, how, how has it been raising capital in this new world, and, and uh, how have you found it? It's, uh, it's crazy. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you know we uh, we 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 started in the fourth quarter of 2019, and and just as the pandemic was kicking off, um, it was our our first investor, uh, we we had we had martinis with them at at Cipriani's at, at Grand Central in February, just as the lockdowns were were coming down, and 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 so um, the the biggest shift for us is that. Uh, Every single dollar that we've raised from investors, and we should talk about, you know, what the investor landscape looks like as well. It's been done over Zoom uh, or, or, or phone calls, and that that you know, coming from a, a traditional banking background, where where for any type of capital raise, you're, you're typically meeting with with the investors directly. Uh, it was it was a departure, and we we weren't sure how how that was going to play out. But I, I I think what it points to is is just a growing appetite. Um, for investors that may have a small Bitcoin allocation, um, but but for those that want to uh, get additional exposure for them, the volatility associated with you know holding a single name or in some instances you know trust-based products that, that may be trading at 15 to 20 percent discounts isn't really appetizing. And so 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 for those folks, um, you know, over over multiple conference calls, it was it was int- really interesting to see how uh, how investor behavior itself shifted. Um, from from you know normally sitting down uh, over a meeting over multiple meetings versus having a couple of calls and and, and, and funding and so that that, that was a, a key change in my mind. In, in a weird way, uh, being forced to do all of uh, our investor calls over Zoom just allowed us to get more reps in uh, organically. I mean, I think there was there was a week back in March or April last year where we had like 40 or 50 investor calls that week. That would have been impossible if we had to, if we were shuffling around New York City, um, you know, and, and or, or, or transit. So, I think that at the point, the biggest question we had to answer was, will people give us money if they've never met us and they've only seen us over a video call? And I think we answered that pretty early on. Um, and you know, we're, we're pretty proud of the fact that uh, we built this during a pandemic. It is interesting how much it's going to go back to normal. And I used to spend probably half my time traveling, talking to clients and investors. And, you know, I, I kind of feel like my travel is going to be down 75% to your point that it, you can reach more people this way, you know, in, in this remote fashion. We do more things regularly in office hours, segments. Like, do you, do you see yourselves traveling less? I mean, how do you see that? I, I think I think Tejas is going to head down to Miami for the the Bitcoin conference in June. But I, I, I I'm I'm with you. I think uh, the the environment that we're that we're in and, and we've been conditioned to is 
it, the, the pandemic's pretty much proven out that not everybody necessarily has to be sitting in an office every single day. And so um, uh, it, it, it probably also depends on the investors. So we, most of the high net worth individuals that have invested in this, uh, in, in, in the various funds, uh, we, we've had, you know, uh, video-based calls. Uh, some of the institutional investors that, that we're talking with, uh, they, requ- they still require on-site uh, operational uh, due diligence. And so I, I'd imagine once we get back to the office, um, uh, those aspects of, of the fund management business probably will never change. But but the, the, the initial conversations with family offices and, and, and high net worth individuals, it's pretty clear that that the medium that 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 you know we've used for the past fifteen months is, is probably here to stay. On premise in your house, due diligence calls. You got to come visit on site, <laughs> and it's now my home office. And you know, Wisdom Trees actually, we're taking this remote first world. Actually, um, we I mean, we've questioned this whether or not we need a, a physical presence because. We find uh, we're pretty effective. So it's, inter- I mean, it's interesting to hear, you know, I, I have heard that side that, hey, people feel like they need to visit a place and have a place to visit, um, but maybe not. Yeah. How, how do you guys, um, do you have contact with, um, obviously you're a kind of crypto-focused hedge fund with traditional hedge funds in the space? And, and one thing that I've found, you know, as an aside, to be interesting about the development of kind of the infrastructure around crypto is obviously – Maybe not, obviously, but, you know, hedge funds in general as an asset class have been, you know, performance has been hard. Alpha has gotten harder to get. And if your whole business is generating alpha, that becomes hard. Uh, but then there's this new asset class comes along with lots of idiosyncratic opportunities and areas where smart people like yourselves can really add alpha and, um, you know, generate high risk adjusted returns for people. Do you find that traditional hedge funds are seeing this as well or how do they interact with kind of you guys and your ilk in the crypto world? Yeah, it, it's clear that they're, they're looking at the space. I, I, think, I think most PMs at traditional hedge funds, and you know, we, we get calls all the time from, from friends that, that, that operate in that space, they, they may invest and trade out of, this, out of their PAs. Um, I would say uh, we, we've engaged a couple of traditional hedge funds about direct investments. Um, and what, what ends up happening is that the conversation uh, quickly turns to uh, either their family offices or them individually investing in us, uh, primarily because it's difficult for them to to go back and, and redo all their docs, uh, because you know there's obviously going to be questions around style drift from their LPs, and and you know if you're a long short equity fund and you see amazing returns in, in this one uh, uh, sector of the market, uh, you know can you go back and and, and get an amendment uh, through their through your LPs to basically invest directly into crypto or, or, or through another digital asset fund. That, that's the biggest hurdle that, that, that we're seeing today. The, even the pension funds that we're talking with, it's clear that they get the opportunity. Um, and, and some of them are okay with holding digital assets, assets outright, but the custody issue is, is always going to be an issue for them. And so uh, what they're really good at is betting fund managers and, and assessing risk and doing diligence. Uh, I, but the the biggest hurdle that that I see today, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, this will change later this year, if not sometime next year, is is uh, a, a lot of these larger funds or institutional investors um, having the flexibility w- within their own fund docs, but and, and, and their investment committee mandates to allocate to the space. In terms of things that you poured over from traditional finance to crypto investing. I mean, you, you mentioned early on trying to make money in bull and bear markets. How do you think about, you know, the when identifying the bear market is, are we in a bear market today or is this just a normal pullback? Like, how do you think about it? Yeah, sure. So I mean, we manage our risk the way any any principal trader at a, at a bank would manage uh, portfolio risk. Uh, you know, and, and we look at much the same metrics any traditional hedge fund manager uh, would be looking at. Um, the, the way we think about the phase of the market that we're in, uh, we, we rely on, I'd say, uh, three categories of signals. Um, the first is uh, more fundamentally what's happening uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain, for instance. And what we'll look at, um, you know, a uh, number of wallets, we'll look at uh, transactions between large holders. Um, you know, one of the biggest trends we're seeing is 
uh, Bitcoin being bought up on dips like what we had this week uh, on different exchanges, on Coinbase, for instance, but then being moved um, to a cold storage wallet. Um, and so we're seeing less and less Bitcoin on exchanges. Uh, and so one of our, uh, one of our uh, an important thesis we have is you know, th- th- there will be a supply shock to, to the markets because there will just be less Bitcoin, physical Bitcoins available to you in the circulating supply. And so, um, so we're looking at uh, what's happening fundamentally on, on, on various blockchains. That's, in, in our view, that's, a, that's probably the most uh, uh, forward-looking signal we can rely on. Um, we'll also look at what's happening structurally between uh, spot exchanges and various derivative exchanges. I think one of the things that uh, most folks don't know is that the, the crypto markets have a very, very robust derivatives market. Um, there is, there's, of course, in, in the U.S., the uh, CME futures and options, but there's a pretty strong uh, uh, futures and options uh, market that exists offshore. A lot of the trading is done over-the-counter, um, and there's a fair amount of volume that happens in, in, in many of these markets. And, and so frequently, there's a signal on the way the futures price of Bitcoin, the futures price of Ethereum, or really the futures price of uh, really any liquid cryptocurrency has versus its spot price. And there's a, uh, there's a signal that can be tracked. And usually, uh, more than 50% is a good forward-looking indicator for what will happen to price in the short term. And it does, you know, in our view, it does it is a good indicator for uh, you know, short-term uh, market pullbacks and sometimes a, a, an opportunity uh, to really uh, jump into a um, – um, or to really buy a dip. Um, and then the third um, category of signals we rely on, uh, to a lesser extent, we do look at certain technical levels that we know many retail traders uh, tend to love. In our, in our view, the crypto markets, on a day-to-day basis, uh, much of the trading that exists, it's still very retail-driven. Um, retail-driven retail traders are uh, tend to look at the same technical signal. So when you know one segment of the population is buying, that generally means uh, uh, the entire retail uh, uh, market is buying. And so it's a good lagging indicator for um, short-term trends. And in our view, the combination of technical, structural, and fundamental signals gives us a good view for in the short-term and long-term. Well, this has been a great conversation. We've been talking with Ed Shin, who's the CEO, and Tejas Naval, of Chief Investment Officer of Paratoxy Capital Management, all about the crypto space, the asset management part. Uh, Will Peck, head of Emerging Technology, thanks for joining me as as host today. Chris Tukes on the soundboard, Patty Hall, producer. You can listen to, to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.